Good evening and welcome to this Halloween special episode of For the Love of Books podcast, featuring indie and small press authors with host Eva Polova. I would like to thank our sponsors, Doc Chavin, The Low Ledger, and Modern History Press. My guests are horror authors, Andrew Allen Smith, Craig Brockman, Matthew Hellman, Robert Williams, and ghost author Stacy Rowe. Tonight, I will be channeling Stacy and her psychic Leota from Corpse Queen, who will take us where you've never been before. Let's start the seance now because it's Halloween. Voice, tell me what to do. Leona, Leona, what do you see in your crystal ball? In my crystal ball, I see a cage and a monster in that cage. Marlowe reached back his hand and struck the girl. She fell to the ground, grasping her face. He reached out again and the creature in the room became agitated. A small dragon screeched, and I smiled as I heard the sounds of the dragons long past, and my brow furled at the thought of Emma being hit. Flame erupted from the cage that belied the size of the small dragon, and men scattered everywhere. I felt something I had not felt in so long, longer than most would remember. I cared. The men were swatting at fires everywhere, and the chatter in the room was palpable. Marlowe ignored it all. His fury was all-consuming as he picked up Emma, then struck her again. The growl within me grew and grew until I heard my unusual vocal cords say in a single word what Marlowe needed to hear. Stop. The word echoed in the warehouse like an explosion, and everyone turned towards me. It had been so long since I had uttered a single sound. My voice reverberated in everyone, and the result was fear. Marlowe looked at me with disdain, thinking the cage held me, but I was not a prisoner of the cage. I was a prisoner of apathy that had grown within me for thousands of years. This young woman had awakened the spirit that had allowed me to conquer the world many times over. I waved my hand, and with but a gesture, my fingers touched the bars, and they shattered easily. The humans had built steel in order to cage us all, but I was built of something far stronger. Marlowe dropped Emma to the ground, and she fell hard, adding to my anger. The other men looked towards me and began to panic. They were trapped by both me and the fire. I grabbed Marlowe, and he fit into my hand far too easily. I lifted him above the ground with no effort. Put me down, you monster, he screamed. He struggled as though he still had some measure of control. I felt his hands try to move mine. And inside, I wondered if he felt like the ant trying to lift the mountain. When he realized he was unable to move me, I saw something in his eyes I had not seen in him before. The sheer terror of the face of fear and impending doom. I paused, then with difficulty used their words. I, I began, and realization caught him, am not the monster. Leota, what do you see in the crystal ball? I see in the crystal ball a noose and black hair. 
and news and violence. And news and black hair. And black hair. Bob, and news and black hair. You start reading. And here I thought you said, and here I thought you said news. <laughs> Here's an excerpt from my book, A Youper's Tale, Death by Wendigo, from chapter 14 of Fall Harvest. On the border of the Huron Mountain Club property, in the McCormick Wilderness area, a large antlered beast stood atop a high rocky cliff. The beast was massive as the moonlight reflected on its terrifying horror. The head was that of a great antlered wolf beast. It stood upright with long edgy claws attached to fingers and strong muscled arms. Those in turn were attached to a powerful muscled body covered in raggedy mangy hair. The beast eyes glowed, pure evil peering down to the bottom of the cliff. There lay the lifeless, half-eaten body of Eric Thompson. The body was crumpled in the rocks and still had remnants of shredded clothing on it. The clothing that was left on it appeared to be hunting attire, brown canvas pants, hiking boots, a red flannel shirt, in an orange hunting vest, at least what was left. Eric's lifeless body lay mangled from the impact of being tossed off the cliff into the boulders. His skull was crushed, while his body and limbs were bent in unnatural positions from the headlong toss by the beast. The rest of Eric's shredded flesh and clothing were the result of slashing claws and gnashing teeth. Standing at the top of the cliff, the great beast popping jaws of death were still dripping with blood and pieces of shredded flesh. The monster tilted its head back, letting out an unearthly screaming howl, followed by a loud guttural roar in the direction of the moon. The great beast, or Wendigo, as it was known in Indian tribal legend, then disappeared into the shadowy darkness of one of Michigan's last wilderness areas. In a short time, perhaps a few days, Eric's mangled body would become carrion for turkey vultures, ravens, crows, and insects. Now both Eric Thompson and Nadia Redhorse would join the ranks of the dead victims in Huron Mountain's ghosts of the past. Do you think this is real? <laughs> the order. Now for the news. What do you see in the crystal ball? Oh, I see my crystal ball, light, light, touching the ground. All the afternoon while they played. Can you hear me? Am I coming through? Perfect. Okay. I'm sorry. All the afternoon while they played, a woman sat on a rock far in the water. Matt only had seconds to weigh his options and make a decision. Back and forth, he rationalized. If he just drove away, he didn't want to hear tomorrow about a lady who got struck by lightning at the shallows, but he risked stranding the kids if he got struck. But then he continued to argue with himself. The storm wasn't overhead, just close. He could be out there in two minutes. Calling 911 would take too long, and the storm would be here by then. What the hell is she doing? Hello, hey, do you need help? The woman was motionless. 
Matt stood with his fists pressed into his hips, elbows angled outward, and nervously pivoted left and right, looking across darkening water to the waves far out in the bay, still tipped by sunlight. He glanced back along the infinite arch of trees and beach that disappeared north and south, as though there might be someone else who could come to the rescue. He finally sighed and stepped farther into the water, hesitated, then started forward again, wallowing deeper as quickly as he could. Soon he is up to his hips. The water had been perfectly clear earlier, but now it was murky, in fact, filthier, filthier than he had ever seen it. He couldn't even see his knees in this cloudy mess, and the waves were getting bigger and more restless. Matt was more than halfway out there, another rumble, but still distant enough, he thought. As he waited nearer, he could see her figure that she was younger than he had thought. It was that modest, old-fashioned, black one-piece suit that made her look much older. He was close to her. The water smelled bad. He looked around in the darkened murk, fearful of brushing against a dead salmon or something worse. Damn, come on, lady. The strangeness was palpable, and he couldn't control his rising panic. Hey, come on. Are you okay? No response. Loud, seismic thunder. Damn it. Matt stepped, stopped behind her and reached cautiously. But just before his fingers touched her gray mottled shoulder, her head quickly swiveled. The last thing he heard was his own screaming babble. Oh, no, no, God, no. Leota, what do you see in the crystal ball? I see waters, ghosts swarming from the waters. Again, as he piled wood on his carrier, a deep grunt resonated from the forest behind him. Sure now that it wasn't falling snow out of the trees in great masses or a figment of a, his imagination, the old man turned and stared into the darkness. A heavy overcast made sure that no moon or starlight illumin illuminated the area. Tree trunks were black sentinels that rose up from the deep layer of snow, but only those within 30 feet were even identifiable. Pavo's eyes strained to see any other shapes in the snow anything that looked like a bear, unlikely though that scenario was. Nothing looked even remotely out of place. Then, slightly to his left and deeper in the forest, his attention was drawn to something. A movement? A pile of snow cascaded from one of the big white pines that towered over his cabin, dumping part of its load down Pavo's neck. It had been almost as if he had shaken the tree himself, causing the avalanche. But he hadn't and couldn't have caused it, not a tree some 80 feet tall with a 30-inch diameter trunk. His old heart increased rhythm, taking him back to his younger days when he would hunt deer and see his prey slipping through the bushes, stepping closer and closer. But here he was decidedly not the hunter. A chill, deeper even than the sub-zero temperatures, crept out of the dark. Something moved, high off the snow, but with measured, precise, stealthy movements. He tried to focus on the source, but found himself taking in a huge dark void, barely distinguishable against the blackness of the woods. Finally, he was able to discern a massive shape that blotted out the trees and snow behind it, despite the limited visibility. Whatever this monstrous thing was, it was alive. Pavo could feel it. Never in his 84 years had Pavo Silkala feared for his life, until now. He stood there, transfixed by the shadow, staring. Fleeing was futile. That was a certainty. But he had no weapons, only a hunk of firewood clutched between numb hands. 
The old man took one, then two steps backward, inching toward the safety of his cabin. Raising the stick of wood, he shouted, Get the hell out of here! Trying to sound as intimidating as he could. The blackness seemed to be coming at him from between several trees, formless and foreboding. The deliberate slowness of its advance made Pavo think of the shows he would watch about lions stalking their prey through the long grasses of Africa. At once, the darkness was obscured by clouds of flying snow, the white plume rising up and then surrounding the old man as it fell around him in a heavy deluge as though he stood in the path of an oncoming snowblower. He felt the snow bite into the exposed skin on his neck, face, and wrists, the extreme cold a minor distraction in the face of this unknown doom. The piece of firewood in his hand felt silly, small, and useless. He doubted it could hurt whatever was coming for him, even if he threw it with all his might. But throw it he did, as soon as the massive black shape rushed at him through the trees. The octogenarian blinked out like a candle in an avalanche without ever seeing what stalked from the cold night. The fire in Pavo Sokola's cabin burned to cold, gray ashes with no one there to tend it. Leora, awaken. Come back to us. I am back. All right, let's dispel the mysteries. Andrew, which book were you reading from? I was reading from another slice of fear from the story Monster. Uh, Craig, which book were you reading from? Dead in November, a novel of Lake Superior. Matt, which book were you reading from? I was reading from The Biting Cold. Bob? Which I was reading from my book, A Youper's Tale, Death by Wendigo. Excellent. Thank you. Now we're going to take the questions, and we got some from Diana Plopa and Victor Wolfman. So uh, whoever wants to take that question. How do you draw the line when invoking fear without repelling readers? Whoever wants to take that. This one's from Diana. I'll go, I'll give it a roll. Um, I try to stay away from anything that's too graphic um, unless there's a specific need to create the scene of exactly what's going on. Um, I try to key on my experiences, having been afraid myself, at times I've been scared hundreds of times. Um, and so I try to describe and get across to the reader what the character is feeling, what how their heart is beating, how their breath might be shallow, uh, how they might have clammy hands. Um, and so I, I try to stay away from anything that's too smacky in the face. Um, I'd rather they create in their mind what scares them the most. Anyone else wants to take that question? Right. Uh, I think I like to base mine on reality. By the way, hi, Matt. I did, I've never got to, Matt and I have corresponded for like two years on Facebook and uh, email and that, but we've never actually talked. We almost hooked up in Marquette one time, but we've never actually met. But uh, I really I really like Matt's books. He does does an excellent job with UP horror. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think I I think you start with reality is kind of like what 
you want to put the reader in a position that what would it be like to experience something that's absolutely impossible to imagine? You know, with my book, uh, I talk about ghosts coming out of Lake Superior and stuff. And I want to put people in that position. It's like, especially people who don't really believe in ghosts or the supernatural. I'm kind of on the fence even myself, but um, I want I want a reality experience. You start with reality and it's just like an impossible, put put a real person in an impossible situation. Thank you. Anyone else wants to take that question? I would love to. Yeah. I, I try a lot Go of ahead. different, but I usually... Uh, try to bring the reader in with a sense of normalcy initially uh, and slowly work in. Uh, I try not to cross lines, but occasionally I have. Uh, there, There is a story that I wrote that uh, went a little too far with some people. I got some letters on it, uh, but it's good that I got letters on it because they said that they liked the, every one of the other stories. There was just one that took it a little too far. Uh, with Thrillers and horror, the line is really blurry because mm -hmm. people yeah. are not afraid of anything. And some people have deep-seated fears right at the top of their head uh, that can be set off in an instant. Uh, and it's one of the reasons that I like writing anthologies because I have 15 to 20 different ways of getting inside of someone's head. All right. Another one by Diana. Is there a fearful topic you would not consider writing about? If so, what is it? And why won't you write on that topic? Whoever wants to take that question. Uh, that's, that's an easy one for me. Um, I, won't, I won't touch school shootings. Uh, okay. as, I mean, they're horrible. Uh, and the reason I won't touch it is I was um, I was on the Columbine investigation, which was one of the first major school shootings in the United States. Um, after seeing that, I, I'll I'll stay away from that subject completely. Totally understandable. Anyone else wants to take this question? Yeah, I don't have a really hard line. Uh, and I, there, there are so many ways that uh, a lot of things are too much, but I stay away from things like uh, uh, child molestation or uh, hurting children. Uh, that's uh, That just goes a, a little bit too far. I know that there are authors that, are, that take it a whole lot further, and I have had children in my stories, but somehow the children always seem to skate through. Uh, so I, I won't take it to that level of uh, uh, of distastefulness. Totally understandable. Anyone else wants to take this one? All right. Yeah, I, I, think it, I think it depends on the author and your readership. If you look at the history of horror you know, and the, the, the spectrum of it, um, you have everything from comical horror to absolutely, you know, grab you by the, the marrow of the bone uh, horror stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, I think if you want to develop an evil character or something, I don't think I would have any limits in terms of 
children or rape or anything like that. If, if you're developing a character that you really want your, your reading audience to hate and despise, um, you know, to, to add intensity uh, to the story. Personally, I, I think anything's game on there. Um, but it just depends. I guess it's, it's a personal taste in terms of the author, but I think in terms of the audience, uh, you can, you can go, you know, basically as wide as you want in terms of what you put in your book and still scare people. Okay, so nothing is off limits for you, right? Pretty much. Okay, all right. And this is a question of uh, both my own and Diana's, and I bet a lot of other listeners, readers, authors, professionals, or non-professionals. How much of your fearful writing comes from your personal experience? And how much is simply pure imagination? And I want everyone to answer this. This is a very important question. Whoever wants to go first. Craig, you're muted. You're muted, Craig. Uh, I would say uh, a great deal comes from personal experience. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I've, I've certainly been in some really frightening situations. I think. Uh, fear you want to engender uh, I'm I'm really curious I have lots of hobbies do lots of stuff and I think I don't think that people who aren't curious are interested in horror I think uh, your horror sense and your fear that comes from your curiosity about things I think um, so uh, I think that's a bit uh, a big part of it I also think fear kind of sharpens us and so I think that you want to inject that into your books is that we need we kind of keep ourselves sharp by <laughs> by exposing ourselves to, yeah. to fearful and the, the stimulus like that so i think in war-torn areas i don't think they're they're uh spending a lot of time watching horror movies or reading horror books because they're surrounded by horror so uh, but i think we almost need a sense of horror in order to keep us sharp sometimes so who wants to go next yeah, for me, this is a quick one. Uh, it's It comes from pers my personal experience uh, sparks my imagination. So I, I remember situations or things that uh, sparked fear in me. And then I translate those into a fictitious situation that can even ratchet it up uh, several several levels. Andrew? Mine, I guess, is weirder. I've been fascinated by fear since I was young and was afraid when I was younger, uh, but I worked very hard to overcome fears as I grew older. I have It's about 50-50. Some comes from personal experience and things that uh, I've done, but about 50% is imagination and the people around me. Uh, this year, I spent a significant amount of time talking to people at shows, and I asked them what they were afraid of and got a little bit inside of their minds, and that took it a, a little bit different way. But it, it's it's about 50-50. A lot of it, as I start writing, the my imagination takes off and writes everything for me, uh, even in the 100,000-word 
uh, tomes that I've got out there, it's still imagination that's taken a single experience and turned it into something different. Bob? Yeah, I think for me, it's experience and imagination. I know uh, when I was a kid, I used to love to watch horror movies. I, I used to like to put myself in scary situations. In other words, uh, going into houses, old houses that were supposed to be haunted, uh, staying out in the woods at night alone uh, for the experience, I guess, to test, test myself, uh, test my own courage, I guess. Um, in terms of imagination, if you take your personal experiences, for me anyways, if you take your personal experiences, what made you afraid, uh, what horrified you, and then amplify that into your imagination and try to articulate it uh, for your readers so they, they physically feel what you might have felt, the, you know, perspiration uh, on your hands, accelerated to run, fleet or fight. You know, if you can, I think if you can use the, the experiences that you've had that scared you and articulate that so that the reader feels it, that's kind of what I strive for in terms of using you know, both my experiences and my imagination. Okay, for me, it's 50-50. And my next question is, uh, what was your like scariest, most scariest experience that ha or profound experience that has projected itself into your works? That has really influenced you to the point that you had to write about it. Can you pinpoint such an experience? I can definitely, <laughs> yeah, I can definitely. Uh, um, that in, in my book, Dad in November, I write about getting caught in a blizzard and I've been caught in blizzards twice on the highway. And, and I don't think people understand how horrifying it is to get stuck in an absolute whiteout while you're while you're driving on a busy highway waiting for somebody either smash into the back of your car or you to smash into somebody ahead of you you can't stop because somebody will get you your only alternative is to ditch it which i was i ran into a situation like that and it's in the book uh for me that was a really frightening just you know just panic you know right on the verge of panic so and it happened to me twice getting and they just drop when you're up in lake effect country they mm -hmm. just drop out of nowhere you know anyone else had something really profound happening to them that has influenced them or even maybe changed their lives as a young man uh when i first started hunting uh <laughs> kind of staying out in the woods just a little too long and so when the dark closes in, when you're in the woods, mm -hmm. it it's literally like that spotlight that gets smaller and smaller and smaller right around you. And it just creeps in on you. Mm -hmm. And that's a, a creepy feeling. But when you start hearing sounds that you don't recognize, you know, animals, like I, I heard uh, a rabbit get grabbed by an owl or an eagle or something and start screaming and you know move off through the through the woods at a rapid pace because it's being carried 
uh, I remember the hair on the back of my neck standing up and I just thought, yeah, that's these, these kind of scenes, uh, they're inspirational for me because I, I try to express that in some of my writing. Anyone else? You know, I've had quite a few interesting experiences from having machine guns shoved in my face to almost losing my son in, in a car accident. And it all revolved around facing death. And mm -hmm. uh, in facing that, I, it's you you see things from a different point of view and how how you can pull things together and uh, you know how how that specter of death can can be looming over top of you very easily. All right, a few by Victor. Um, what, uh, what about the deep winter?